Okay, so uh, three programs in how many hours? 24 hours? Is that what we did? Three programs? We started off here, it was last week or last night, I think. Um, and we are, uh, we had a program at lunch. We had a roller coaster last night. We had Israeli art as a window to Israeli culture today. And we are now focusing on Adam Badama, human land, exploring the relationship between the people and the land of Israel as reflected through art. Most of you have been to programs, so I'm not going to do a full um, bio. The bio is in the material. But, but not only is this the final program um, here in Orange County for at least a few days for CSP, but um, Shirelle's one-month residency in the United States ends very soon, and she goes back to Israel before she comes back here. I told her all about going to Laguna Beach. She hasn't been there yet. She had never heard of Pageant of the Masters. The Shulkov said they would take you right away. So you're going to have to run right after the program or next time she comes back. And uh, yes, we, we have a lot of art and we have the beach and we have sand and a lot of stuff going on. So it's a good place to be. We have many beaches. Um, so please join me in welcoming back Shirelle. She just goes by Shirelle. It's like Madonna. I don't even do the last name. Shirelle back in Orange County. Last program for a few weeks, months, but we'll have you back. Okay, everybody clap. Wake up. Thank you. Thanks. So, um, we're zooming in, and in this talk, we're going to focus on the relationship between people and the land. And I want to start with a small disclaimer um, because I'm going to be showing also Palestinian art. But uh, why a disclaimer? Because I'm a Jewish Israeli woman. Um, my expertise is in art and narrative and not in Palestinian art. And I'm, I'm putting it out there because it means that I'm coming from a very specific perspective and even the Palestinian art I'm going to show uh, is very much dealing with this relationship. And, we, and I think the title of this talk for me sets the framework for that because Adam Vadama in Hebrew, um, you, and I wrote it on purpose like that also in English. So Adam, you probably know from the Bible, Adam v'chava, human. Um, but if you look at the words, you can see the root is the same, Adama, earth, and Adam, human. And it makes sense biblically, right? We know uh, according to uh, the Bible, uh, man was created from earth. There's a very tight link between the two. And what I want to explore with you this evening is this link, the way it's portrayed in art, and specifically in the land of Israel, which is in the state of Israel, which is um, a very contested place, as we know. And another thing maybe that is good to state is the difference between Eretz Israel, Adamat Israel, and Medinat Israel. Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, Medinat Israel, the state of Israel, and Admat Israel, the earth of Israel, the physical earth. Okay, and very often, I don't think we always notice, but each of these carry a different weight within our tradition and within our political concepts of, of the land. Okay, so we're starting once again with Reuven Rubin. For those of you who were with me at lunch, we saw this artist. Uh, quite a prominent figure in these days. And we're looking at a triptych uh, by Reuven Rubin. Um, one, two, and three. It almost seems as if here there's a line, but it's a painted, it's like not an existing line, it's painted. And we can see on each of the sides, he port he's portraying the people of the land, the locals, right? They look Arab, can you see? With the Arab garbs and dress. You can see the camel 
and the sheep over there, so shepherds, you can see uh, the sabra plant, the cacti, we're going to speak about that soon much more. And in the center, do these people look Jewish to you? No, but he is actually portraying two Jewish couples here. Okay? And we have uh, kind of two possibilities of being Jewish in the land. On the one side, he has here a traditional couple, a Yemenite Jewish couple. You see they're fully dressed. He has the peas, right, the Yemenite peas. And it's hard to see, but here she's holding in a hand a pomegranate, which is one of the seven fruits that the land of Israel was blessed by, okay? And in art, very often the fruit that is depicted is indicating to something specific. So it, the traditional couple holding a traditional fruit, Whereas we have here this couple who, why did we say they don't look Jewish? Because usually when we think of uh, people depicting being Jewish in art, we think of the Hasidic garb and people pouring over the books. It's very far from that over here. But we're looking at the new Jew, the Jews coming to the land, working the land, looking at the locals and want to be like the locals and part of the land. We see he's exposed, she's exposed too. And what they're holding are a watermelon, bananas, and oranges, all fruit of the land of Israel, right? But not biblical fruit, okay? And he's calling this, uh, this uh, painting first fruits, perot rishonim, the beginning. We're looking now at a, uh, another very famous from that same time, Nahum Gutman. Once again, you can see here um, influences from art that is going on at that time around the world. And I want you to look, if you see, they're anatomically incorrect, the people. But if you look, they're painted in a way that looks like the land, right? Can you see? The knees here look like these hills up here. And what we have are people that are coming to the land of Israel, right, then Palestine, excited with a Zionist dream, and they're painters, and they observe, and they're painting this excitement. They're looking to portray a very, very deep connection um, and that is also very often erotic. Uh, the land of Israel is referred to as a female, uh, and, and kind of that relationship in the scriptures can be very, very erotic, and in the paintings, this whole connection between human and land. And we can see here a work from the 60s by Uri Reisman called Woman Negev. Negev is the southern uh, part of Israel, the desert. Um, and you can see, you can literally see how he merges between the landscape and the female figure. Can you all see it? Okay. Okay, so. And what I showed until now, I mean, you can see up until the 60s, and here we're already in a different world, 72, post-67, the Six-Day War, and we're looking at a work by an artist named Micha Ullman, a very famous Israeli artist, uh, still alive, had a huge exhibition uh, at the beginning of this year uh, in Herzliya Museum of Art, in an action that has become a very, very uh, famous one, it's called Metzer Messer. Basically, Metzer is a, is a kibbutz in the north of Israel that is very close to a, a, an Arab village, Messer. And what he did with help from people both in the kibbutz and in that village, he dug a meter by, oh, I don't know, uh, feet. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> a meter by meter and meter deep of earth dug it out of the kibbutz, went to that Arab village, put it in 
the land where he dug the same amount of land and put that land in a kibbutz, literally exchanging the lands. And the whole thing is an action and this thought of what is the earth itself? We're clinging onto it. We deem it as holy. Um, and what is that? And what happens if we exchange it? It's also a very interesting thing. Metzer, Messer, first of all, the relationship in the language. The languages are very, very close. And also Messer, it's limsor, is to give, okay? To, to give something. So also a play on those words. Um, and we're starting to look at a time where the art world, people in the art world um, are asking these questions of how does the art relate to what we're seeing around us and what is our comment about what's going on. We're moving to another very famous work from 1974 uh, by Micha... Oh, <laughs> sorry about that. Just realized that's in Hebrew. Um, <laughs> Um, the eyes of the state. Now, the eyes of the state is a phrase that became extremely um, famous uh, with the battle on the Hermon and conquering the Hermon, the mountain at the north of Israel, calling it the eyes of the state because it's high, uh, strategically high enough to look over. And what Michal Neeman does in this work from 1974, and I'll just mention at the time with uh, looking also in the U.S. at conceptual art, okay? So very much what's going on in Israel uh, in terms of the art that itself that is happening. She writes on this sign, Ha'enaim Shalamdina, the eyes of the country, which is a phrase that everyone knows, and she places two of these signs uh, on the beach in Tel Aviv, okay? Again, I'll say a question of the relationship. Where are we looking towards, okay? Overseas or to our own borders, so she places them there and she basically sits and looks to see what will happen with them. Will the wind blow them away? Will people do something with them? Will the Coast Guards do anything with them? So three days later, the Coast Guards just took them. We have the photos uh, left as evidence, but again, it's this meditation and question on, on what, where are we looking to and what is this place and what are our borders? Right, Because if you think of it, uh, Israel is a country with no acceptable borders. Okay? If you want to draw the map, it depends who you are, how you draw the map, right? Which is a crazy thing to realize. And she's asking that question about the borders. Uh, we're looking here at two different works by Ezra Orion. This one on the left, if you're in Jerusalem, you can go and see it. It's still uh, there. These are steps going up high. Ma'alot, uh, in Hebrew, that's the biblical way to say stairs. We say madrigot today. But ma'alot is both stairs and also virtues and also to go up. Okay, And that's the name um, of this work. It's a little hard to see here, but they're upside down, the stairs. Like you technically cannot climb them. Also a comment about our ability to ascend or our disability to ascend. Another work over here, which is, uh, doesn't exist anymore, but it was done uh, in the desert, in Mitzperamon. He used to also live in that area. And Ezolion created these huge works um, at a time where in the rest of the world also we had land art. Um, for those of you who are familiar, huge like works um, at a really scale of land. 
And this was a mound of dust, a huge one, that was there uh, to fill up holes in case of bombings in the area where the planes um, landed in the area of Mitzperamon, that's in south of Israel. And he was in reserve duty and he usually used many of his friends from the army to do his artwork with him. And basically what he did here, he took a, a big tractor, but the ones with the, I know the name in oh, Hebrew. No, a bulldozer is that, but like with the spade thingy. Shuffle. I think it's a shuffle. That's still a bulldozer. It is. Okay. I have learned. Uh, it, so a bulldozer. Um, and basically went through the mountain, slowly scooping up the middle of it. And that's the work. Once again, these are, these are actions, right, that are looking or questioning the place of the physical earth. Not only the land, not the land as a concept, but also the physical earth and what it means to us and what it means to cut through it. And now for something completely different. <laughs> right? That was a lot of black and white, right? We need some... Uh... Okay, um, so this dude's name is Kishkashta. Um, and anyone who was born and like have the chance to see this can also sing the song of this TV show. Um, I can, I will not do that now. Um, and what does he look like? What does he remind you? Like a cacti. And I'm guessing many of you heard the word sabra before. What does that word describe? A cactus and a native born Israeli, a sabra. Do you know why? Right, tough and, and spiny on the outside, sweet and adorable in the inside. It's also a great excuse to just be rude, um, but yes. Um, and, and that's a major symbol in Israeli society. Um, and we're going to come back to it in a moment. We're going to play with the symbol. Um, uh, this is a work by David Rib, and you can see 1987, he's a painter uh, that deals directly with the conflict, and you can see he's putting here the two sides. We can see the map of Israel here. Once again, not everyone will draw the map of Israel this way, right? And not today, this is 1987, right? And we have the two sides. What are we seeing here? What does it remind you of? Tel Aviv, exactly, and it's all in blue and white, and the towers. And what are we seeing here? There's, there's a person here covered in a kafia, right? We have what colors? Red, green, and black, right? The Palestinian uh, flag. Um, at that time in Israel, there was a law against painting those colors. Uh, so much so. So this was uh, a very problematic act. Uh, there was literally a law about a combination of colors. Uh, and he and some other artists pushed to change that. But you can see here the dichotomy between the two, playing with the colors, with the scenery, with the view. I'm skipping much further forward, and we'll go back and forth a little, because I want to talk uh, about the symbol of the sabra. Over here, again, David Rive, this is untitled, using this. These are paintings. His works are all oil paintings. And you can see around, those are kind of rusted remnants of a battle, okay? And the sabra, which is um, a symbol of the Israeli, he's using it here, once again, to ask a question of what, what is it, like, with the war? What, it, what are we now? This is a work by Assam Abu, Abu Shakra. 
Um, and before I talk about it, I want to say a few words about the terms I'm using. Because I can call him, um, he's no longer alive, but I, I can refer to him as Arab-Israeli, as Palestinian-Israeli, or as Palestinian, okay? And these terms, it's very important that like, they're both a political choice um, and they're a personal choice. So usually these days with people who are alive, I will follow the way they describe themselves because someone can be with an Israeli password, passport or ID and identify as Palestinian, right? That means they're residing within uh, the green line. Someone can be Palestinian and non-Israeli. That means they don't hold an Israeli ID and they're outside of the green line. And they can play and people can decide to say I'm Israeli-Palestinian or I'm Palestinian-Israeli. Does that sound familiar, the choice between American Jew or Jewish American? Um, it's a weird, and I'm on purpose making these comparisons because each of these choices are a very personal choice and a very political choice, okay? And for many, many years, uh, if you saw any Jewish-Israeli reference or formal reference to this population, you'd see Arab-Israeli. Okay, so same for instance, if you saw Asama Bushakra's work in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, it would be written Arab-Israeli. Okay, in the next, uh, in in uh, the like second term of the permanent collection is in the Israel Museum that was changed about two years ago. All the signs changed from Arab-Israeli to Palestinian-Israeli, which is fascinating. And sometimes, really, if you go in museums, sometimes the signage can tell you a lot about a shift in a country. And what is a Sama Bushakra painting here? What are these? Cactus. Now, the interesting and not so crazy thing is that the Sabra is a symbol of the Palestinian people, too, so much so that they're major like caricature, I don't know, have you ever seen the Israeli Srulik with his like hat and the sandals and the shorts, the Israeli caricature? If you have, he's kind of, he symbolizes the quintessential Israeli. In Palestinian culture, the, the major old caricature is called Khintale, and he's actually a cacti plant. Um, it's also their symbol, which makes sense. We're on the same land. And how is Abu Asama Bushakra painting these? You can see they're in flower pots, right? They're disconnected from the land, and they're not receiving any sunlight. It's artificial light. And he's mourning um, the, the disconnect of his people or the uprooting of his people uh, in the land. And this, I'm guessing for some of you, it can also remind of the sunflowers of Van Gogh, which is also an interesting play uh, with that. And this is a work from 1988, and we're going to skip for a moment to another work much later by Michael Halak. He's a, a Christian Palestinian Israeli. Uh, which is a minority within a minority, because most of the Palestinians are Muslim, but there is quite a population which is Christian. And it's, I'd say, if, if you want to choose a really rough life, go for a minority within a minority. Um, this is also a painting, oil painting, and we're seeing here two men pissing on a sabra plant. And you can see the subtlety we just saw in Asama Bushakra's work with the sabras, right? This is, there's something very sad and very subtle about this, right? It's easy, it's kind of easy to connect in a way. And then we look at this and there's no subtlety. It's not about sadness, it's already this like pushing against, right? There's something very, um, uh, yeah. Visceral. What? 
Thank you. Visceral uh, about it. Um, So um, this is interesting. First of all, we don't know if they're, I'd say we know they're Israeli just because the way they dress, but we don't know if they're Jewish or Arab, right? And Muslim or Christian, we don't know. But he calls this Tzabal, which is Sabra in, uh, in uh, Hebrew, and we know who he is, right? But he's not giving us in a way, and that's an interesting question, because he's not giving us like, a side view with some necklace that will tell us what religion they belong to, right? They're random two guys that are pissing on this plant. Um, and I think there's a powerful statement to that too. And I'll just say that in many of his works, he actually uses a lot of uh, uh, religious Jewish verses. Uh, he plays with that uh, a lot. Another work from uh, 2019, it was uh, just exhibited in, uh, in, on the Sea Museum in Jerusalem. This is just a bunch of sabra plants on a, on a skewer, very, also very harsh, very painful. And something really interesting happened with this work, um, which was not expected or planned by the artist. Can you see what happened? That was not planned. That just literally happened, which, is a beautiful, crazy metaphor to the, the cycle of death and life and what we deem as maybe lack of hope and how life still uh, finds it way, its way. Okay, uh, we're going kind of, that was a little road trip through the Sabra to kind of look at it from both angles and we're going back 1995, uh, detail from installation by Sigalit Landau. Um, uh, called Har Bait. So Har is mountain, Bait is home, but Har Habait, the Har Habait is temple mount in Hebrew. So she's playing with this here. She's taking away the the, and it makes it just mountain house. Okay, but for any Israeli knowing, hearing this name, they can't not think of temple mount. And she's creating this place that is. Very, very much homeless, right? And once again, asking or contesting this question of where do we belong to? And where does religion place us? And what is our home? Um, we're moving a little forward, 1998. Um, uh, Gilad Ophir is a photographer. This is a photograph, not a painting. Um, called Ktsiot Base. It's a base in the south of Israel. Um, and it's from a series called Necropolis. Necropolis, the city of the dead. And, and they were filming, it's a joint project between Gilad Ophir and another artist, Roy Kupel. And they were filming in deserted army bases in the desert. And you can see here in the way the pool, the empty pool has kind of drunk all the color from the sky. Can you see that? It's like the color is, at the deserted pool rather than the sky. And we're looking at art which in those years, and you can see it both through Sigalit Landau and Gilad, and, sorry, yeah, and Gilad Ophir. There is something that like almost, I don't know what if it touches you, but for Israelis it's very, very clear. I happen to have uh, a print of this in my home because we exchanged uh, works. Uh, and I can tell you that anyone that walks into my house and sees this, the first thing they ask me is what army base this is. I don't know if that happens to you. And I'm mentioning it because these are works that are an internal conversation 
about our connection to the land, and they're tapping into very, very personal memories. Because um, we can't see here anything specific that might tell someone from outside it's an army base, but I have yet to met someone Israeli that didn't ask that question, okay? So we're looking at art that is very much in an internal conversation. Okay, uh, Gal Weinstein, 2002, you can see the proportions of this room. This was exhibited in Helena Rubinstein. You can see they're cleaning with vacuum cleaners because actually what we're seeing here is the Jezreel Valley, as you'd see it from above, all made out of carpets. Okay, a beautiful, beautiful work. And you end up, you can walk on it in the exhibition. It took up the whole space. Um, uh, Gal Weinstein is from Nahalal, it's a kibbutz in, uh, in the Jezreel Valley in Israel, and a lot of its works refer to that land. Now, first of all, if you look at it, and these are carpets that he cuts, okay, and creates this huge puzzle. It's not like uh, designed on computer and then printed as a carpet, but rather it's pieces of carpet slowly going together. And if you think of it, two things happen here. First of all, the labor and the love. Right? Wanting to like take that aerial view of, of a valley that you love and put it there and the labor it takes. But then what happens? We tread on it all over it. And if you think of it, treading and walking the land in Jewish tradition has quite a meaning, right? Of, you know, we have from Lech Lecha Meltecha that the command to Abraham is to walk the land, right? Because by walking we take ownership. And it has, and we're gonna see that this walking will reappear. This is a work from the same exhibition, but a different room. The dog is in a sculpture, it's his dog, but it's good for proportion. Um, it's a real dog. I was about to say it's a real human dog, but that doesn't make sense. Um, and all of this you're seeing here, which looks like cracked land, is actually made out of uh, MDF. Do you know what MDF, do you know? Um, how do I? Um, it's like, it's like not wood, but when you take all the scraps of wood and smush them together to get a softer. No, no, MDF. No, it's not sawdust, because you I think it's that. Um, it's funny how, I know my materials in Hebrew. Um, so this is all fabricate, fabricated from that. So this is a huge sculpture where each piece is a kind of puzzle that is fabricated from this type of wood, um, imitating the Hula Valley when it's dry. Okay, also talking about the land, what we're doing to it. Um, uh, I'm showing you here, uh, two works which are the same work. Gal Weinstein did this work in 2002. This was exhibited in the Kibbutz Gallery in Tel Aviv. We have this roof that took over the whole space. You could kind of only walk around it. And um, we don't have snow in Israel, right? So it doesn't really make sense to have these roofs and they became a symbol of like richer people. Okay, that are building homes. And when it was exhibited there in the gallery, it was very much a comment about, um, about socioeconomic status. What was fascinating was, this was exhibited again in a different format. You can see it's going through the glass here. Can you see it's both indoors and outdoors in the Venice Biennial. And there it was completely talked of as something to do with settlements and a political statement about taking over the land. And it's really interesting to see how the same work placed in a different place can receive a context and be interpreted in a completely different way.
Um, we're looking here at a work by Dora Domini, uh, Sand and Sand, Chol Vechol, or Chol Chol, it's also called. Chol uh, in Hebrew means sand, it also means mundane. Uh, and it's also very often symbolizes the difference between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. We think of Jerusalem stone, whereas we think of the sands of the beach of Tel Aviv. And she creates here a very simple form, right, on a very, very Israeli-looking floor with a blanket you might take to the picnic and with a basket that you might get your shopping in. And the sand is a complete circle with the basket. But if you pick up the basket, what happens? The sand just goes, right? And another comment about what are we holding on to, what are we letting go of, what is put together, and what will just disappear. This is a work by Porat Solomon um, called Shabbat. Um, uh, Porat is a religious artist, we actually studied in the same uh, year in Betzalel, um, living in a settlement in Bat Ain. It's quite a, uh, I'd say, in terms of settlements, it's considered a right-wing, very like hardcore settlement. Uh, and he's here with his family. This is a photograph of himself with his gun behind his back, right? His wife kind of blessing over the candles, but we can't say if she's blessing or she's crying. And his oldest son, who's now the first of six, um, and a pile of earth right, uh, on the table. And really in this uh, Porat, and he's calling it Shabbat and looking at the Shabbat table, but really asking himself, how do we live in this high-risk environment? How can I be a father? Um, what is it to be in such a charged situation? And it's very interesting to see a person that chose to live there, right, um, and still using his art to really deal with these questions in a very jarring way, right? He's sitting with a gun and his kid and his wife and that earth on the table. Um, we're going to see now, one moment, a work by Sharif Waked, Palestinian. أنه كان هناك تاجر من التجار كثير المال والمعاملات في البلاد قد ركب يوما وخرج يضرب في بعض البلاد فاشتد عليه الحر So I'm going to talk I just silenced and what Sharif Waked is doing here is a really um, I'd say powerful thing he's choosing what does this look like Right, a terrorist reading verses from the Quran before going to a bombing attack. Um, he, this is not the artist, this is an actor. Um, you can see the making of, of this. But he chooses this whole setting while reading the story of a thousand Arabian nights, which is basically a story where the king wanted to kill uh, Sheikh Rezada, um, but what she did, she told him stories and she, she left the endpoint in the morning so like uh, interesting, he wanted to hear the, the next. And that's why she was telling a thousand stories, right? Because she didn't want to be killed. He spared her um, at the end. Um, and Sharif Waked is playing with that uh, theme and really using, first of all, the visual to make us see that that tension, and, and it's a tension also within his own culture, right? The visual and the gap between that visual and the poetry and where's the culture going. Um, 
And another thing which to me is very interesting since I don't speak Arabic and most of us when we see that, especially in the visual, we imagine very different words. Like we associate the language not with the thousand Arabian nights but with completely other things and that lack of knowledge and those subtitles plays also on that. Another video. Sorry, I put them like that so I remember. Okay, we're gonna see a video by Tamil Tzadok. I'm gonna start it and I'm gonna skip parts because it's long, but I want us to kind of be able to see it. Okay. מרכז המבקרים על שם רבין בתעלת עזה כולל סיור וירטואלי בתעלה, תיעוד היסטורי של החפירות וראיונות עם מוביליו. I'm stopping it for a moment. This is video art. This is fairy tale. It doesn't exist. Okay, let's, let's get that straight because I'm seeing your faces like, what? Um, but he creates like alternative realities in his video and you can see it's a kind of solution to uh, the issue in Gaza. We're going to see a little more so you see where, where he takes it. And if you notice the sound, he uses all the ways we'd usually hear the types of voices in visitor centers, right? It's like that type of voice, it's that type of music, it's like that's why it's so confusing. במשך שמונה שנים נחפרו 61 קילומטרים והוצאו מיליוני טונות של אדמה, 15,000 פועלים יהודים וערבים חפרו את התעלה. אל תגידו אי אפשר, תגידו אי אפשר. מה שהתחיל כיוזמה אמריקאית ידע משברים, אסון רב נפגעים, הפך לסמל להשתנות ושיפור, ונוצרה בו מציאות חדשה, מציאות של תיירות ושגשוג, תעשייה ומסחר, סמל למציאות בריאה יותר. האי הפך לאחד מאתרי התיירות הפופולריים במזרח התיכון ומוגדר כאי ירוק, אי אקולוגי. ההיסטוריה של התעלות מתחילה כמה מאות לפני הספירה. בני אדם חפרו תעלות עוד בעבר הרחוק מאוד בהודו, סין ומצרים. של הרצועה שאורכו 41 הגיעה את מירב מרצו בעבודת שטח מרשימה. It's a funny video. 
I, I agree that it's not a bad idea. Um, okay, a work by Chaya Rukin, also from 2011, called Boat. She's in a room that very much looks like a dorm room, right? Very sparse, um, holding what looks like a sail. She's obviously not sailing anywhere. Um, but if you think of it, Israel is surrounded by countries we can hardly travel to. Jordan is one, parts of Egypt are possible sometimes. Um, but we go overseas. The sea is like the one place where we can go out. Um, and if you think of a boat, it's also a lifeboat. It's all of these things, but it's also with this, you can see completely impossible, right? There's this whole image is saying like, nothing is gonna move. This is a dream with no, ability to fulfill itself. Um, we're going to see another video now uh, of an artist named Rafat Khatab. tree is this? Would, if you had to guess what tree, what would you say? Olive tree, exactly. And notice again, we share the same symbols, okay? Do you recognize where this is? It's Rabin Square in Tel Aviv. Uh, and he's playing with us with this beautiful, sentimental uh, caring for a tree, really a love uh, affair with a tree that symbolizes the land until we're pulled out and seeing where. And if you think it's in many ways very similar to the painting by Asama Bushaka of the cacti that is out of this place. And how do you create a relationship with the land when that is the way uh, you encounter it. And Rabin Square with all its you know, sim symbolism and the, the uh, monument, which for those of you who were here, uh, oh, it was last night, <laughs> like a week ago, um, uh, is a monument uh, for the Holocaust. 
Okay, we're going to see another video now by an artist named Nira Pereg. It's exhibited as a two-channel video, but we don't have two channels. So we're going to see first one part and then the other part. It's called Avraham Avraham Sarah Sarah. Okay, and I'll start, we'll see a little and then I'll silence it and I'll talk while we're seeing the images, okay? So I'll talk a little as we're watching this. This work is actually a video based on a documentation that the artist did of uh, what happens in Me'arat HaMachpelah in the cave of the fathers and mothers in Hebron uh, post the uh, massacre uh, where um, um, uh, Palestinians were killed by a Jewish extremist during prayer. Uh, there is a complete divide there for Muslims and Jews. But 10 days a year, Jews get the whole place for themselves, okay? Um, and that's during the high holidays, Yom Kippur, Shavuot, Passover, and parts of the days of Sukkot. And 10 days a year, during the high Muslim holidays, the Muslims get the whole section of, uh, of uh, like the, not section, but the whole place of Me'arat HaMachpelah. And this, ceremony of changing around the place between from the Jewish to the Muslim, which by the way, the fact that she got, it took the years to get authorized to film this. That's like a, a thing. Um, but we see the place changing its face completely from the Jewish to the Muslim with all the symbols, really asking this question of belonging and who do, do these things belong to. And what I'll do for a moment, I mean, you can see the shift here right, what it looks like, the complete shift. That was the Abraham, Abraham, and we're just gonna see, um, one moment, a moment from the um, Sarah Sarah, that's this one, so that you can see also the reverse. And these are actually happening, because it's a two video channel, these are actually happening you're seeing them simultaneously, but it's also a kind of cycle, right? Because now they're clearing out all of their uh, stuff from the space, and then the soldiers will inspect everything to see no bombs were planted, no weapons are there, no one is hiding. They'll clear the space and come in um, and switch it. Um, I'm just going to do this. You can see they're moving everything, folding all the carpets, but you get, you get the idea, right? You can see how it shifts. I just wanted for a moment for us to see what it looks like. By the way, I'll just say uh, the work here, the sound work is amazing because this is a curated sound work. It doesn't sound like that. It's not so quiet. It's all designed and then put together so that we have silence with just the sound of the moving objects. See, so now they're checking the space. want you to see. Uh, and in that way, it's extremely symmetrical, right? The same action, the same ritual is happening, but each time in reverse. See, coming in and starting to reset 
the place. The purpose is to allow, uh, during the high holidays of each religion, to spend time and pray in that holy place fully, um, while preventing bloodshed. Um, uh, because that place is holy to both religions in that, such a way, and until, um, I don't remember the exact dates, in the 30s or the 40s, it, it wasn't under Israeli control. And then it shifted hands. And there was a different system for a while until the terror attack there. Um, and then this system developed in a way to allow both religions to pray in that holy place. Um, and the whole ritual is, first of all, because um, you, know, you want the place to look like a synagogue when you're praying there, or you want the place to look like a mosque when you're play, praying there, depending on your religion, as well as because of the events that happen there, you want to know that you're safe because over 20 pray prayers were uh, murdered in that uh, event. Okay, that was a little heavy. Let's do something slightly lighter, right? So we're looking at a, at a work by Maya Zak called Paperwork. And also just, you know, the land, everything is so, so, so heavy, right? The maps, like everything is saturated with like blood basically, and tears. Um, and she's playing here on like what is also very, very mundane, just our day-to-day -day life, because we also go to offices and work and everything, and playing with what a map is physically. And if you think the difference between, and we mentioned, the earth and the state and the land, right? And what we call a map and just this overflowing paperwork <coughs> that becomes an, a land of itself. Um, I also wanted your eyes to rest for a moment on something beautiful. Um, uh, a painting by Elad Ferber. Um, if any of you have been to the Yarkon, it doesn't look so beautiful. That's a very, very, very specific angle to create a very, very beautiful oil painting. But once again, interesting to find those personal points of views of beauty and how, how to paint or capture that beauty in the land, sometimes completely devoid of the conflict, okay? Because we constantly have this thing, this back and forth. It's simply a country we grew up in. We want to love and enjoy, and yet it's this constant battle between a very uh, direct relationship to a place and a very conflicted one. Uh, we're looking here at a work by Fatma Shanan, a Druze uh, woman, Druze Israeli, and for those of you who were um, at my lunch talk, I mentioned a different artist and I said Druze Palestinian. That happens because they choose how to identify. Um, this is an oil painting. She's an amazing painter that doesn't do justice uh, to her work. It's called Carpets, and in Drew's tradition, carpets are like a thing. Uh, it's, it's a central piece of the home, and she paints these carpets covering the fields, and she talks about the difference between her relationship to the land and the relationship she knows from Gal Weinstein. Okay, she's in the tradition of Israeli art. Carpets have been played played with in various ways, and here she covers the land in a way, in a very personal way. And suddenly we don't know, like, is it making it home or is it covering it? Like, what do we do with that part? And she's bringing the home and the land completely together. Another work by Mahmoud Kays, Arabesque. Um, he's taking the very uh, basic uh, um, ornament work that you'd find, uh, it's called Arabesque, you'd find it 
in any uh, ornaments on mosques and uh, Muslim architecture. Very, very fine, delicate woodwork, but creating from it a kind of wall in the museum where you're looking in and you looking at both sides also with relationship to the walls that are built uh, between the two people. Um, this is a work, it's a five-channel video work by uh, Sharon Glasberg. We're seeing an installation shot. Um, this is all built like a greenhouse. Um, and she's talking about the agriculture in Israel, um, where all the videos are actually of the Thai workers, because at this point, our farmers aren't Israelis. They're from Thailand. Um, and she created a whole project with them working the land and looking at this issue of agriculture and connection to the land that is now manifested through uh, people from Thailand and no longer through um, the hands of Israelis or Jewish Israelis. Uh, the interesting thing she does, she creates a procession with these workers and the kids of the kibbutz for Shavuot celebration. Okay, so she's mixing these two cultures together. Um, a work by Tal Shochat, this is called Zait. Oh, well, switch the I and the A, please. Sorry about that. Um, Tal Shochat is um, first-generation Israeli. Her parents from, are from Iran. And like her and many of us, I'm also first-generation Israeli. And it's, uh, and it's experiencing parents that have migrated. And what she does in her art is pretty fascinating. This isn't Photoshop. It's a photograph. And what she does, she goes out at night and puts artificial lighting and a backdrop behind the tree. So you get this feeling, the tree is photographed in nature, but because of the artificial lighting and because of the backdrop, it looks as if it doesn't belong there, as if it was just pasted on top. And she's creating this comment about, if you think of it migrating to a different country, in many ways it's uprooting yourself and trying to replant and plant roots in a new land, and she's playing with those things because we are rooted, but the backdrop has changed, and how are we connected, and what does it look like? Another work of hers you can see is called Rimon. It's a pomegranate tree, once again photographed in nature, but behind it is actually the carpet from her family's home, which here it's hard to see, but it has pomegranates on it. Just an interesting, funny anecdote of how like particular she is. Before she photographs the tree, because there's no Photoshop. She doesn't do Photoshop. It's all on place. But she does go up in a ladder and shine all the fruit. Uh, <laughs> that's why they're so shiny. No, it's pretty amazing when you think, I think it's, when you think of what someone is trying to say with their art and we're looking just at a photograph, but how much thought comes in to create that image that somehow captures the beauty and the estrangement uh, simultaneously. Um, we're gonna skip this in favor of this. Um, I want some fun. So um, this is a work called Shvil Israel that was exhibited last year by Merav Heyman and Ayelet Karmi. Shvil Israel is the path of Israel. And it's a, a trail that goes from north to south and you can walk the whole country. Many people do that uh, after the army, before or after they go to India or South America. Uh, some youth do that. And it's literally walking all of the country. Um, and it's kind of a culture of its own, and if you think we spoke already about walk, what it is to walk the land, right, and the importance of it. And in this work, which, one moment, 
was exhibited like this. So you'd walk in, into the room and you'd see this video. And I want us, before I explain a little more about the work, we're gonna see uh, the video of it, or a short video. let it run and I'll say a few words. So what they did in this work that actually took four years and a lot of funding to create, they walked pieces of the route with 50 people without ever stepping once on the ground. Okay, so building not only the costumes but all these devices. And if you think of it, it's really about trying to find a way to portray this very conflicted relationship with the land and the country and the earth. Because on the one hand, it's not giving up on walking the land, right? It's not giving up on that. But it's doing it in a way that is painful, cumbersome, difficult, and that maintains a constant physical distance between the earth itself and their own feet. Um, a work that really, I think, to me, holds a lot of the essence um, of being an Israeli these days, this very complicated relationship that is still stubborn, that is still going through this journey, not giving up on the journey, but in a way that kind of really tells something of the pain and the difficulties uh, of it. Okay. We're near the end, just so you know. Um, and I want to talk, there are two more works I want to talk about. Um, both are exhibiting right now in Israel. So if you happen to be, uh, they'll both be up in, at least until September. Both crazy in their own way. And we're going to see one in Tel Aviv and one in Jerusalem. We're seeing here a shot from an exhibition called Eretz Chadasha by Tamar Hirschfeld um, that is all over the Rubenstein Pavilion. And if it looks insane and crazy, it's because it's totally insane and crazy. They even flip the hours of the museum so it's open at night until midnight. You can actually go there at night. It's insane. Uh, you're seeing the artist here wearing a bride's dress which she painted below the same way if any of you saw Miri Regev, the Minister of Culture at the Cannes event with the Jerusalem dress. It's an imitation of that. And I want to say a word first about um, the name of this exhibition, Eretz Chadasha. Eretz Chadasha means new land, okay? That's first of all, it's talking about the land, new land. Um, but also, uh, for any Israeli, it's a reference to a very famous pop culture, uh, a pop uh, song um, by Shlomo Artzi. He's a kind of old-time singer. I don't know what parallel to give, but, but whether you like him or not, if you're Israeli, you can sing all his, so his songs. It's really annoying. Like, I don't like him, and I can sing the whole song now. Um, that's kind of how uh, uh, central he is. And this, there's a verse, Im lo na'et, lo na'bit, lo na'sim lev lifratim, lo na'gia le'eretz chadasha. If we don't slow down, if we don't... 
uh, look around, if we don't notice details, we'll never reach a new land. So you can't see this name without thinking of that. And in this exhibition where she takes over the whole three floors of the space in like a crazy way, this is just one part uh, in an artificial cave she made. And you're watching in VR glasses, uh, three Bedouins tell a folk tale in the desert. Um, just so you get a little more of what's going on there. It's rooms and rooms and rooms where you go through. If any of you traveled in Israel and came back from the southern uh, desert with bottles full of colorful sand, that's not real. She fabricates everything. And it's kind of like going into a candy store tourist shop gone mad. Like, it's really hard to explain. This is another detail. If you look here carefully, you'll see it's a washing. Like in Israel, we very often don't use a dryer. We just like open this um, thing and we hang our clothes. So that's the washing. But what's hanging are all uh, ceramic made uh, uh, cacti leaves. Okay, once again, that cacti leaf uh, reappears over there. And she's using many, many, many symbols, uh, including a video you kind of walk through of a love story between her and a skeleton uh, in Paris wondering where to live, if here or there. The skeleton dies at the end, if you are wondering. Um, but <laughs> it's, really, it's really a place to go and be. She basically takes everything, it's kind of like as if the internet exploded and became sculptures over three floors, um, uh, which is a fascinating phenomena. And she uses basically every symbol and plays with it all the way to complete kitsch. The last thing I want to show you before we open up to questions is something that is happening right now in, oh, one moment. You're seeing all my, uh, let's see if it pulls it up when I write it in English on these two. Uh, uh, let's see if we can't get it at, yes, yay. Oh, tell me there's the video. Okay, I cannot find the video, so I'm gonna show you the image and it's pretty beautiful for its own right. And I'll tell you the story. happened? One moment. Something is happening here. I have the little Mac wheel thing. Oh, okay. Here, I'll close you. I mean, three lectures with no technical. Oh, it just like crashed. It will come back. Do not report. Now this, we're almost there. Thank you. It's like plants, you need to speak with them. And then they go. Here it is. No, not you. Where are you? Here you are, okay. Yay. Okay, 
So for those of you, it was worth it, right? So we're looking at an, an installation that is currently exhibiting in Jerusalem, uh, um, in the city. You can go there. It's going to be up until mid-September for any of you that are visiting. This is what, what it looks like during daytime. This is what it looks like during nighttime. You can also go in. And it's a pretty amazing, crazy project by an artist named Yora Mamir that passed away a week before this opened. Uh, he was uh, very sick with cancer, and, um, and the whole project was his vision, and it was carried out by a large group of volunteers. Yoram Amira was quite a character in Jerusalem, um, kind of an artist, a performer, a historian, a collector of anything junk. Um, and throughout his years, he collected any windows from Jerusalem homes that were discarded many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of windows. And this vision of his was basically to rebuild with the windows of Jerusalem. So this is only a part, 900 windows from uh, the windows that he collected over the years. And then this was designed by him, carried out by a group of volunteers for uh, this festival in Jerusalem. And you can see how beautiful it is. And I think there's something I, I'm happy to kind of end with this because there's something very beautiful. Um, on the one hand, this, this is discarded matter. It's also a story of gentrification, of lack of care, of people throwing out stuff. But it's a story of one person who cared enough to create all of this beauty of what was put aside. And to me, that's very, very beautiful. And in a way, I think of artists very often as uh, either prophets or court gestures preferably court gestures. No one really likes to hear them, but we need them. We need them to invent ridiculous alternative realities like the Gaza Canal, or collect what we all put away to create from it something new and beautiful that might comment about the land, about where we live, and about the physical material that makes our life. So, uh, huh. So we have some time for questions, uh, and if not, I have another video to show you, but that's uh, up to you. <laughs> I'm just curious about the um, Israel trail. How long does it take to walk the length of the country? And there were very young children in that video. Did they do the whole thing? Okay, so the trail, depending on uh, how you do it, my younger brother did it, for instance, and he did it like throughout a month. We also have th something that is called Malachishville. Uh, uh, an, uh, path angels, and it's people that like their home is open for anyone that's doing the path, and there are also people that put water in specific places. Uh, in this, at some point, they realized it's going to be completely impossible to actually walk the whole trail, so they did bits of the trail in each part of Israel. So they didn't skip, like they didn't do the full trail. They just made sure they're filming in each part of Israel because it became, they realized it's completely insane and impossible. Still, it took four years. We did have Udi Gorin here twice. Mm. He's a photographer ah, who so you know hiked the trail and talked about it. 
Perfect. We'll, meet, we'll be meeting with him in Israel in and, it, and it's interesting to see, I mean, the difference between what artists do, right, with the place and what other people do with the place. I think that's where art becomes fascinating because it's, it's uh, interacting with something that, like, we've known forever, or at least I'd known forever growing up in Israel, and suddenly putting it out there or giving it back to me in a way I've never seen it before. More questions? Phyllis and Alita. Uh, I have two related uh, questions. Um, your narrative really brought all the, the artworks to life. And I think had I seen them independently, I wouldn't know like just a fraction of what you have told us. So is it that the narrative is required for appreciating and understanding, or, or are people expected to put on their own ideas uh, about these works? That's a beautiful question. Um, and there are many answers to that, right, of how we view art. And I'd say it's first of all up to you. I like going into a museum and usually not reading anything, go to the art, see what I feel, what I think, and then read about it and see what their relationship is between what they say and what I felt. Some people like reading and then going and seeing. Some people, I mean, it's very, very personal. Um, and this, also this question of art and narrative, I'd say um, there's always a fear of like simplifying right, of taking something and telling a very, very clear narrative yeah. And, yeah. and somehow maybe taking away from the complexity, uh, which is something I wonder about too. Um, but then I think it's a lot about you and what I think the beauty about art is that you have the agency to decide how you want to approach it um, and, and how you want to look at it. Um, and so that's up to you. And I'll also say that the narrative I bring is also a very specific one, because this could be if there was someone else standing here talking about the same topic, possibly even with the same artworks, uh -huh. you might have heard completely different things, yeah, right? Um, and that's also important yeah. to know that you're, you're seeing this from a very, very specific angle. Yes, informed and all, but still very, very uh, specific. Yeah, that was my that was my second question. Could someone tell it completely differently? Completely differently. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, you you brought it to life for Thank me. Thank you. You informed me of something I really wasn't aware of, and I think our last trip to Israel together was a year ago. No, it's like no. no. Well, anyway, it, it was maybe within the last year or two. And um, when you mentioned the one piece of art where the agriculture and the greenhouse and the, and the worker in the field was uh, someone from Thailand. And I, I really wasn't aware of this phenomenon where Thai workers are coming to Israel, presumably to do the agricultural work, um, presumably to make a better life for themselves. And I'm wondering if their presence and their culture is starting to have any kind of a, an influence or an impact on the arts, the music, things that are happening in Israel. 
Um, and I imagine it just makes it all the mo that more complicated. Uh, readily, readily, you already had the Palestinian issue and the Arab issue and, and all that. Now you have the Thai and the Ethiopians. And so what's happening in that regard? So actually, it's quite an invisible tiny community, mostly located in the agricultural, agricultural centers in the south of Israel. And in that way, the work by Sharon Glasberg that's kind of depicting that population was a first glimpse um, very, very hidden, really not looking to be seen in any way, and very often also uh, in very poor conditions. Um, so it's not an issue that is spoken much about um, and is far from being visible. If you think of it, it's also they're not in the cities. It's not like if you think of Filipino uh, migrant workers, they're way more visible because they're caregivers, so they're part of our lives. And there are many works regarding that community in the art world. Uh, there are. Um, but, uh, and same uh, people from India, uh, but uh, the Thai community, because they come mainly for agriculture and it's in the south of Israel, they're almost unseen. Uh, if, you, if you were in the first, uh, like, it was yesterday, oh my god. Um, uh, so the, the winner of the first Israeli X Factor was a Filipino caregiver, right? She was, I mean, it's, look, for, for a culture to actually influence another culture when it's a minority, you need, like, if you, I'll give maybe an example. There were a million Jews from former Soviet Union coming to Israel in the 1990s, and only in the... 2000 and we start seeing that voice as part of the Israeli art, okay? And that's a huge group of people that is still a minority but has a lot of power. So think what it would take for a much smaller community that is in, not in a place of power to have some kind of influence. I will say that in South Tel Aviv, if you come, there's an amazing uh, Filipino and Chinese food market inside the central bus station, which is one of the... One of the craziest places, yeah, yeah, yeah. My studio used to be in that crazy building. Um, um, so yeah, so in terms of food, it's arriving when I want some weird vegetables I can't get anywhere else. I go there and I ask and I experiment with vegetables I've never seen before. I'm just curious to know if the ties come as families or just men? Usually come. just men, just men working. Sad. We have time for one to two more questions, is that it? Oh, Rochelle, hold on here. What about the... Um, wait, 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 wait. What about the uh, exchange between the Ethiopian Jews and the wider culture? What, what impact are they making and what impact are the regular Israelis, the white Israelis making on their culture artistically? Um, so I think if you remember from... Uh, uh, Today during lunch, I showed uh, a work, two works by Nirit Takele. Um, it's very new. I'd say, first of all, generally in uh, more traditional cultures, people uh, go less to study art. It takes much longer. And also when you're in a lower socioeconomic uh, status and you don't have so much money, I mean, you can't go and study art. So there are fewer Ethiopians studying art uh, in the population, but it's changing and there's more and more. And as we have, um, these voices are surfacing and coming out. Um, 
And I'd say in terms of uh, the Ethiopian culture, it's like it's budding. It's very, very, very new. Uh, it's a community that is finding its voice and protesting. I don't know if you know, uh, a few weeks ago, a young, a young man was shot by an officer off duty. So these are things that are happening really now. And once again, for a community to have an impact on the majority, it takes a long time. Fair amount of impact music-wise, though, right? Still tiny. I show more because I want to expose to many things, but still small. In terms of music, I'd say the impact is, uh, of the Mizrahi culture is huge. That's like the main music. Do we have time for another Yeah, we'll do one more. Is there a lot of intermingling in the art area of the various groups, the Ethiopians, with the Ashkenazi, with the Mizrahis, with the Yemeni? That's a good question and a beautiful one. Um, first of all, I'll say that in general in Israel, in terms of the Mizrahi, Ashkenazi, Yemeni, all of that, it's, it's very much mixed on a day-to-day -day life basis. And discrimination at this point is more institutional in a way still with things to solve, but, but it's, it's, I wouldn't say um, the communities that are more outside are maybe the Ethiopian community that tends to be more distant. Um, the other communities are more mixed and very often the Russian communities keep to themselves. I think there is something very beautiful about the art world that it does create more of a mix because you become a community. It's like, um, People ask me, so you're coming to a city, did you go to the synagogues? I'm like, I go to the museums. They're my, they're, they're my, they're my thing, they're my community. And I think we, we then have an additional language that is, that is common. So there is more mixing and we end up, you know, if I show in a group exhibition, I get to know the artists. So there's a little more of the mix between communities that maybe are more separate, um, it's still, there's still a lot of separateness. It's the last program, so we'll do. <laughs> hold on, hold on. So everyone can hear you. With all these dis disparate populations, how how's the education system work? <laughs> That's a hard question. I realize. <laughs> wow. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 looking, I'm looking for the words. It's, first of all, it's, it's extremely complicated, right? Because you have the public system, and within the public system, you have subsects of Jewish and Arab within the public system. And then you have, between that, also secular and religious, and then you have semi-private of the ultra-Orthodox. I mean, I can go on and on. Um, it's really weird. Um, and maybe the largest problem problem is that the teachers are underpaid and our education system could be way, way better. I will say there are tiny schools and a few initiatives that make me very optimistic, like the Dulishoni, the dual language school that exists in Jerusalem, Jaffa and Haifa, which is a joint Arab, Arab slash Palestinian 
slash Israeli and Jewish school. The kids grow up together. There's also uh, programs like Keshet and Hameshutaf, which are schools that bring together secular and religious Jewish-Israeli kids that grow very, very separate one from another and with parents that were looking for a way for their children to grow up together. So there are pockets of those types of initiatives which are very beautiful, but generally speaking, it's very separate um, and in not, not in a good state. The last question, only because you're an it's artist. It's 8.30, we're still only on because time. because you're an artist. Hi. Um, when there was a question asked about the Ethiopian art, and I think I heard you made a comment, make a comment, that they weren't going to art schools. And my reaction with, to that was sort of there when we spoke about this a little bit today. But their indigenous art Speaking is. Oh, their indigenous art is so unique and special. I would think that if they went to art school... So first of it, all, many okay. of the kids that grew up here don't know the indigenous art. They grew up here. Uh, and in many ways, the ties to their culture were severed for various reasons. The other thing, once again, uh, when a community or people are struggling for income, they don't go to art school. So there are more and more Ethiopian students, but generally, if you look all over the world, you need a specific level of income to go to an art school. And you need also kind of, because what do you do? How do you make a living afterwards, right? Right, right. but I, I, what I meant was that I would think if they went to art school, it would be, they would be influenced, I was gonna say pushed into, influenced with a whole different kind of art, whereas what they have to offer, I'll it will be diluted. The, the Ethiopian Jews that are going now to school have grown up in Israel. Some of them, like Esther Rada, uh, she had to go back to Ethiopia and relearn Amharit. It's a, they, they don't, I mean, some of them do, some of them don't, but they're very much Israeli and in many ways severed from their ancestors' culture. Um, and also, it's very much individual. What, whatever country you come from, we probably have a visual um, tradition to lean on, and it depends on the individual where they, how they use that source and bring it forward. But the reason of people going or not going to art school is very often socioeconomic. We do have to end right here, but I want to say, first of all, the um, conversation continues September 8th through 10th. Uh, topic for a two Sorry, I don't want to create some issues with the microphone. Um, a two-part series, Dr. Shana Weiss and Brandeis University, The Globalization of Israeli Culture. The first topic is, uh, this is September 8th, Black is, not, is the New Black, Ultra-Orthodox Jews, Israel, and the glo Globalization of Television. The second one is Pop Toys and Power Politics, Israel, and the Eurovision Song Contest. So we've touched on those issues. These will be focused, each one, on one of those issues. So you'll be gone, but we'll keep talking. And uh, I just wanted to thank you again for coming and thank teaching you. in our community. And I want to thank you all for coming out. Many of you, three programs, 24 hours. Go home, go watch the uh, debate on tape or the post-debate discussion and enjoy the summer. We'll see you at our next program.
and support CSP. Thank you.